Um, we often boil down the Christian faith to like a, a, a do and don't list, um, a list, a list of kind of moral have-tos and have-not-tos, um, which, you know, if you're, if you're doing that right, then, then, you're, then you're living it right and you're, and you're living out the Christian faith. And if you're not doing that right, well, then you're not living out the Christian faith and you've failed. And, and, and like even, even if we think, well, yeah, I'm saved by grace alone, we think of that more as a doorway than as a lifetime. Um, we think of that as the thing that we step in with you know, I'm saved through grace, and sure, God's grace is for me still, but even if God's grace is for me still, even if my sin isn't going to put me under eternal condemnation, um, whether God is pleased with me, whether I'm right with God, is still going to be defined by my actions. And so we've got kind of, you know, the easy do and don't list is like, don't do drugs, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't lie, and do be honest, do, uh, you know, give to the poor, perhaps, you know? Uh, do go to church, you know? A lot of people put that on their, on their do list of if, if you're doing it right, then God will be pleased with me because I'm doing those things right. Um, yeah, I remember this vivid example of this from my childhood. And this is, this is you know, this is how kids are, right? Um, I, was, I was probably like three, four, somewhere there at the time. Um, and, uh, and one of my siblings decides to mess with me and they convinced me, kind of cajoled me in, I'm not sure if that's the right word, to saying um, something along the lines of the Holy Spirit is bad. Um, you know, and, and, and I was like, oh, okay, if you think that's a cool thing to do because you're my older sibling and I trust you, never trust your older... No, I'm just... Um, and, uh, and, and immediately they were like, hey, the Bible says that anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be saved uh, and have forgiveness. And, I, you know, I was distraught. I was like, ah, I've blown it. Jesus won't love me now. I'm only like four. I'm going to have to live all the rest of my years knowing that because of this one moment, God can't love me anymore. Yeah, and and um, look, I, I was. I was genuinely upset. This is why this stuck in my memory. Um, and what, what killed me there was that there'd been something on the don't list that I wasn't aware of. Um, and it was a big one, and I'd done it. And so it was over, you know? Like, I was just, I was just like, well, I may as well clock out now. We're, we're done here. Uh, needless to say, um, when mum and dad found out about this, they were not super-duper impressed with my siblings. Um, but, but that's a reality. And, that, and, and to be honest, it's not just the four-year-olds in us who approach the Christian life this way. Uh, the reality is, that, though, that a Christianity which is just a list of morals, just a list of do's and don'ts, is a cheap substitute for the real thing. And it's one that comes in so, 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 so often. And we have to be aware of this. Whilst the Christian faith does form a morality in us, uh, actions in our lives, good and bad, and a sense of what is good and bad by God's judgment, um, those things, those moral and immoral actions, don't, aren't of themselves what the Christian faith is. They flow from a deeper place, and they flow from a deeper conflict in our lives. Ultimately, the war that we fight in our lives is not one of actions, but one of heart worship. And for the follower of Jesus, there's an ultimate question which you face every single day, whether you know that you face it or not, which is... Who or what will I worship today? What will I give my life to? What will be ultimate to me today? What will be the thing that is at the top of my priority list that everything else is to submit to today? 
Now, as we mentioned, we're in 1 Corinthians here, and, and we're finishing this section that was in two parts where Paul is speaking to this issue facing the church there of food that has been sacrificed to idols. Um, now, to, to give you a quick rehash, like a, a, a one-minute version of last week, um, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says to them, you have a right to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. That is a thing that you have a right to, uh, but you should lay down that right if it damages the conscience of your brother or sister in Christ. And so broadly, the Bible's saying here to us and to every Christian in all of history, we have rights, but the priority of our lives is not to be to sustain those rights. That's not how the Christian life looks. Rights are not the top of our list. Uh, we are to be focused on, indeed, we can know those rights, but we should lay them down for one another in love for the body of Christ and for the lost in order to meet them where they're at with the gospel. So the gospel shows us the God who put his love ahead of his rights for us. That's, that's Jesus, Right? But you get toward the end of chapter 9, and there's this tension that kind of builds up. Uh, it's like Paul senses a question which the Corinthians are going to ask. Maybe this is actually something that they did ask in their letter. Maybe it's just something that he senses is the automatic question from what he's already said. And it's this, does it matter at all if we worship idols then? I mean, if we have a right to eat the meat that has been offered... And, and remember, primarily last week, what we were talking about is meat that's been offered, in the, uh, that offered to idols and then sold in the meat markets, right? That, and, and almost all meat was, was, that was being sold would have been originally sacrificed to an idol at some point. This was the, the interconnectedness of religion and commerce in the day. But if that's all right for us, if we can eat that meat that's been sacrificed to idols, is it really that different to eat that food as a part of an act of worship in the temple of an idol? I mean... Isn't that just splitting hairs? Besides, we know that an idol isn't a god, right? We know that it's just a bit of wood or gold or whatever, so why would it matter if I take part in the worship of that idol? It's just a thing, right? And so Paul is going to spend the second part of this section uh, speaking deeply to this issue of worship. Idol worship and true worship. And he's going to illuminate the worship battleground that is our hearts. And first, he shows us uh, that who or what you worship really does matter. And to do that, he shares this story of, of the Old Testament people of God in the wilderness. Uh, now, these guys had an impressive spiritual resume, you would say. And he, he trots that out for us here. They were all under the cloud. Now, that, if we don't know the history of that, we might just go, yeah, well, that, it sounds like they were grumpy. But, but like the cloud is, is, was the presence of God going with Israel through the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, and they had God accompanying them the whole time, visibly with them in the, in the glory cloud. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the Red Sea, you know, this great act of deliverance of God where he parts the waters and Israel walks through on dry land and then God washes away their enemies after them. They all received the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink. And just like us, all of it was from Christ. The same God provided for them as for us. We're not talking about an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. It's the one God over all of history. But even with that spiritual resume, 
Paul says, so many of them fell in the wilderness. Paul gives these kind of four examples of what led them to fall in the wilderness. And actually, it's kind of one example with three subparts, right? Idolatry and sexual sin and putting Christ to the test and grumbling. Idolatry really is the title, and those other three are kind of the sub-points. So that's why he says, don't be idolaters. We must not, we must not, we must not. That's why his language is different for idolatry than from the other three. This is... A broader definition, do you see, then, of idolatry than sitting down and worshipping a piece of wood in a temple? If, 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 you know, Israel did some of their idolatry in the wilderness was literally bowing down to things. You know, Moses goes up the mountain, they throw their gold in the fire, melt it down, turn it, turn it into a, a bull, and then Aaron later says that the fire did it for me. I, I didn't do any of that. But, um, but, but a lot of it, wasn't this physical idolatry, it was, it was secondary to that. It was a result of idolatry in their hearts where they sinned sexually, where they uh, grumbled against God and against his prophet Moses, where they put God to the test. And these things, Paul is saying, they root down in idolatry. That's where they're coming from. See, idolatry at its root isn't just worshipping a statue. Um, although that is certainly a part of idolatry, but idolatry is when we hold anything up higher than Christ in our hearts. In Colossians, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Because when we covet, when we give ourselves over to desiring what someone else has, we give that thing an elevated place in our hearts that directly opposes the rule of God in our lives. You see, we say, God, I know you haven't given me that thing, but I need that thing. So that's taking a higher place than God in that moment, you see. So idolatry is when we hold anything up higher than Christ in our hearts, or than God in our hearts. And so idolatry is bigger than we think. Sexual immorality and grumbling root down into idolatry, like we see there, but it's more than that. All sin... All brokenness in us roots into us holding anything up higher than Christ in our hearts, putting even good things in a place where they don't belong and can't operate. Uh, This is why everyone is a sinner deserving of condemnation by the Bible's perspective before they come to Christ, right? Even people who appear to live a morally good life Because until we come to Christ, no matter how nice we are or kind we are, no matter how much we give away or how how lovely we are to our neighbours, we are placing something in the top spot in our lives that belongs to God alone. Even if that something is just myself. And so, you wouldn't put myself at the top of your list, it would be you. But uh, maybe you do. That's weird. But we, the, the result of this, so we are idol worshippers denying the one true God, do you see? No matter, no matter you know, whether you're the bikey who's out actively shooting someone or if you're a lovely neighbour with a picket fence, you are elevating something above Christ in your heart. Tim Keller, um, he's an American preacher. Um, he actually, uh, I'm going to quote him, but, but he's actually quoting John Calvin at the start of his quote, just be aware of that. But he says this, and and I love it. He says, The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things, like a successful career, 
love, material possessions, even family, and it turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the centre of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfilment if we attain them. See, it's not just about what you do, it's about what you love. And Paul is calling for us to take our hearts seriously. Because for Israel in the wilderness, idolatry was death. That's a point he makes again and again and again in this passage, right? You, um, did, did you know, you know, a whole generation of people walk out of Egypt on the way to the promised land? Do you know how many of that generation of people walk into the promised land? Two. It's a bit sobering, isn't it? Caleb and Joshua, the only ones who make it across. And the next generation. Paul's saying to us, it led to physical death for them as they pursued idols in the wilderness. But for us here, idolatry leads to a deeper spiritual death. Separation from God. Persistent, unrepentant idolatry reveals a heart that does not trust in Jesus. But trusts in the things of this world. I'm not saying, like, okay, all right, here's, here's, our, here's our automatic reaction to that. We go, wow, but there are definitely things in my life that I feel like I'm holding up higher than Jesus. I'd better cover that and, and pretend it's not there. And that's great if I'm God, but the problem is I'm not, for, for all of us, which, hallelujah, right? But, uh, <laughs> but, but God sees. You, you can't hide it from God. And he knows, and, and don't worry, he's gracious. He knows that there are things in your life that you tend to hold up higher than him. The definition of the Christian life is not being someone who at all times perfectly avoids holding up something higher than Christ. The, dif- the difference is, the definition is that you hand those things to him and you say, God, be more to me. You say what that father in Mark says. You say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I worship you. Help me to worship you more than this thing. And so the message, you know, the message is flee from idolatry. And there's a promise here. He says, God gives you a way out. To love something more highly than Jesus and so to walk in sin is never the only way for those who trust in Jesus. God provides a way out, but that doesn't guarantee that it will be easy. I think think we like reading this verse and going, you know, um, well, I know that situation was really super duper hard, so like he just didn't provide one there. But no, the promise is that he does provide a way out. You know, for some of these early Christians, that way out meant you died. But God provided a way for them to worship and to trust. And, and not only that, he empowered them to do it through his spirit. You know, if he could help them, if he could be that powerful for them, to deliver them, even in the face of death, into his own arms. He can do that for us, right? Back at the end of chapter 9, like, this isn't easy, and Paul makes that point. Um, Paul's compared himself back at the end of chapter 9 to the self-discipline required for an Olympic athlete. He said, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Literally, 
Literally in the Greek there, he says, I pummel my body and make it a slave. Now, that's not the happy-go-lucky Christianity that we super-duper want, is it? But, but it is the real Christianity, he says. And, and he's not saying, I physically attack myself. He's, this isn't self-flagellation, right? This is a, a metaphor of the athlete that he's using in that section. But he's saying, this is hard. And by the Spirit's empowering, you're called to walk in it. You're called to follow. You're called to put aside the idols and worship God more than them. People have tried doing this as physically attacking yourself. It doesn't work. Just to skip to the end of that one for you so you don't give it a try. Saying there has to be some fight in us. In fact, more than that, he's saying, by God's spirit in us, he has put fight into you. This is part of that promise that he gives a way out. He's given you fight. The question is, are you going to cling to that? Are you going to hold on to that? Are you going to step into that and fight? Or are you going to keel over when the challenge comes to worship something else, to give your life to sin? When temptations come, when we feel that pull towards sin, you know the pull that I'm talking about if you're a human being. If you're not, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Um, when we would place something higher than Christ in our hearts, we need this reality. God provides for us there. He's faithful to his people. He provides a way out, and he's put the fight in me to take that way out. Through his spirit. It's not through my strength. I wouldn't be strong enough, but he's strong enough. He's mighty. There are so many temptations, so many opportunities for idolatry today. Um, we, we're not going to cover all of these things, right? Because we'd just be here listing and listing and listing and listing and listing until the end of our lives. But, but you know, one of the more key ones is, is the rampant consumerism of our society. If you've run into this, it draws on us so powerfully. Like we said this a couple of weeks ago, there is a, there is a billions of dollars industry called advertising that literally just exists, marketing exists, to make you feel like you're missing out. Make you feel like there's something in your life that you don't have that you need to have. And we are so prone to idolise stuff. Like marketing doesn't just work because marketing gets lots of money put in it. Marketing works because in our hearts we feel like there's something missing. And so we look to buying that next thing the thing that will satisfy me and will give me joy and peace. A TV is another one of these really common idols. And, and when I say TV, just broaden it out to screens, right? Because um, if, if you're watching Netflix on your phone, you're not exempt. That can still be an idol. Screens have this intense allure, the power of being drawn into a story, drawn into something greater. You know, whether that story be, you know, the fictitious sci-fi show or the story of an underdog footy team who's coming back for the finals, you know. It's so powerful. And, 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 and don't hear me wrong, these aren't bad things, right? It's not wrong to support a footy team. I support a footy team. I'm rubbish at it, but I do it. But think, these are things which we can so easily turn into ultimate things. Easily they can become idols that we give our lives to. And there are so many more. Uh, 
good things that we can make into ultimate things. Things that we are to flee from, not worship. But, but what Paul says here is not just say no to idols. This isn't just saying no to wrong worship. It's taking part in right worship. The worship that God has won for you through the cross. In fact, whilst God providing a way out might look different in different situations, right? Like the, the actual application of that might look different. Ultimately, what providing God providing a way out means is this. God has given me a better object, object of worship. God, God has given me something better to worship himself. And, he, and we get this in those verses that we looked at in communion today. Verse 15 says that we are participants in Christ. He's pointing to a better object of worship and one who delivers us from the false objects of worship. We're led to worship him. We don't just flee from idols, we flee to Christ. As we worship him, that is how we overcome the false worship in our lives. This is key because like, you can't just say no, no, no to that. Like, you, you make yourself avoid and you invite something else to fill the space. This is why, this is why just telling people not to sin is never going to fix society. Because if you tell someone who's not in Christ not to sin, and, and, and they might succeed in not doing that, they're going to fill the space, right? You're just leaving a void to be filled by something else. If you, if you get an alcoholic off of alcohol, wonderful, good, but they're going to find something else to give their life to. What we desperately need to realise is that the things idols promise and that we look for in them, those things, ultimately are found only in Jesus. And so he is the only one worthy of our worship. This isn't a fight between one thing that can satisfy me and another thing that can satisfy me. Or between one thing that deserves my allegiance, my loyalty, my trust, and another thing that deserves my allegiance, my loyalty, my trust. Or between one which gives me joy and peace and another that gives me joy and peace. Or one that gives me deliverance and another that gives me deliverance. And so on. All these things are only found truly in Christ. Nothing else can deliver in the way that he delivers. We look to feel full and complete. I mean, don't we? Like, like really, isn't that what we're looking for when we, when we try to fill up our lives with stuff? When you buy the new car, you know, when the old one's still running and you go, you know what, I should get a new car. And isn't there a part of you that's looking to be completed, looking to feel fulfillment, looking to feel joy? And yet Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. We look to feel alive, don't we? Like, like when your life just feels like it's trundling and it feels like everything's slow and you're like, Man, I want to feel that feeling of being alive. We don't, I want to experience the good life. And Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's no life outside of him. He is life and everything else is a cheap substitute. We look to have security. I mean, isn't that, isn't that 
one of our, our society's great idols is to make yourself secure, to have everything I need, to make my life a little fortress so it can't come undone. Haven't we seen three years of, of that coming undone? The, the things that we buy and the things that we do that can't be shaken, being shaken, and we go, whoa, I didn't realise this could be shaken. I didn't realise that, that bank accounts weren't secure or that housing wasn't secure. Like, but, but Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. There is a, there is a security in him which nothing else Peter calls it an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, kept for you. Nothing else offers that. True worship and victory over false worship starts with the realisation that nothing else is worthy of worshipping. Only Jesus is worthy of all praise and honour. Only Jesus is worthy of living your life for. To raise anything else up to the highest position in your heart and life isn't just wrong, it's wasteful. It's, it's, it's giving, giving yourself to something that doesn't deserve you and will never give you what you're asking from it. I have homework for you this week. Don't worry, it's good homework. This week, at some point, probably today, you're going to face a situation of temptation. And I want you in that situation to do three things. Temptation to despair, temptation to sin. You're going you're gonna to do three things. First, recognise that this isn't as innocent as it might look. At the root of temptations to sin is temptation to worship something in the place of God. And that, that's a damnable thing. That's, that's, that's a horrid thing. That's, that's what Jesus went to the cross for. Recognise that it's not as innocent as it looks. Second, exercise your birthright as a child of God to say no. Not just to the action, speak to the idol. Speak it to the spiritual forces behind that. You know, Paul says over in our passage here that... that Behind the idols, what people are truly worshipping are demons. There is the demonic in the idolatry that the world goes after. And we're going to exercise our birthright as the saved people of God, as the children of God, to say no. It's going to try and convince you, the demon, the sinful part of you even, is going to try and convince you that this is the only way. You can't, not, you can't say no to this. You have to do this. And yet you're going to exercise your birthright and you're going to say, you know what? God's word says that he provides a way out. And I can say no to this. Recognise that it's not innocent. Say no and recognise that you have a right to do that. And then finally, worship. Right there. In the moment. Imagine how much this would revolutionise our struggles with sin. If in the moment of struggle to sin, we worshipped. We exercised the way, the way out that God has provided for every situation. By reminding ourselves of the goodness of Jesus and of our God. And of the power that is in him. You are a participant in the body and the blood of Christ. 
He has carried the guilt and the shame. He has taken them to the cross, and so sin does not have the last say Jesus does. The idol might offer satisfaction, it might offer life, it might offer peace, comfort, and joy. Recite to yourself in that moment the truth that you know is true. Those things are only truly and completely found in Christ. Just like he said. And don't just recite those truths, worship through them. Praise the God who delivers you, who gives you joy, who gives you peace. Tell him and tell any spiritual enemy as well how good Jesus is and how much you love him for how much he loves you. So we go on, three, right? Recognize it's not innocent. Say no, because you have a right as a son, of, son or daughter of God to say no. And worship, the true object of worship, our God. Would you pray with me? Because we certainly need the Spirit's help in this. Jesus, mm. Father, we just want to come before you in a, in, a, in, a, in a spirit of confession here and say, we have been a people who have elevated too highly the things of this world and who haven't seen the greatness and joy and peace that is in worshipping the one true God. Help us, Lord, to worship you alone. Help us, Lord, to see the realities of this world that we don't just face do and don't decisions, but we face a war within our hearts. Help us to recognise the evil of evil, that these things are not innocent that would tempt us away from you, that they are what Christ died for. Help us, Lord, to say no. Give us power in that moment by your spirit to say no. Help us, Lord, to be a people of worship. Help us, Lord, at the beginning and the end of the day to lift ourselves and worship to you. Help us to be, walk as a people who hold you up as the greatest joy of our lives. Help us to look for deliverance, not in the things of this world, but in you. For security, not in the things in this, of this world, but in you for joy, for peace, for fulfilment, not in the things of this world, but in you. Fill us up with Christ and make us a people of worship, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.